The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So I spent the last two weeks teaching a retreat at our retreat center. And uh, it was a peaceful life. It was nice to be there. And I was very aware that there was lots of absence of peace, the opposite of peace in many places around this country and around the world. And that one of the concerns that uh, exists, especially in this country, but all over, is the presence of hate. And so some people are now preoccupied with the amount of hate that exists. Some people are preoccupied with hating. So I thought I would talk a little bit about Buddha's teachings about hate. And uh, maybe it's a bit of a reflection that supports us as we consider our relationship with the hate and the violence that exists in our country and elsewhere. And it's not a uh, incidental topic for Buddhists or for the teachings of the Buddha. The Buddha placed the uh, understanding hate and overcoming hate, the destruction of hate, at the center of his message, of his teachings. And uh, it goes together with uh, two other afflictive mental states, mental states that harms the person who has them. And uh, greed and uh, confusion, delusion. So greed, hatred, and delusion, it's often those three come off the tongue of Buddhist Dharma teachers very easily. And uh, the Buddha said that uh, someone was asked, how do you uh, know the Dharma? How does one know the Dharma for oneself? And if Dharma means the teachings of the Buddha, the great, wonderful philosophies of Buddhism, and great books are written that you could study what the Dharma is, but how would one know this, know the Dharma? Surprisingly, he defined it as understanding greed, hatred, and delusion and the ending of it. He talks that one of the great little phrases is um, the, describing the Dharma is that it's directly visible here and now. And how is it directly visible here and now? In seeing the ending of greed, hate, and delusion. So 
you know, we have all these, you can read philosophies of Buddhism and all this stuff and, you know, great philosophies of emptiness and consciousness or all kinds of explorations. But the heart of it is this, you know, is this ending of greed, hatred, and delusion. What is the goal of the Buddha's teaching? The Buddha said the goal is the ending of greed, hatred, and delusion. So uh, when I first encountered this frequency in which this is being taught, my mind started to glaze over it and, and kind of was a little dismissive of it that this part of the teaching. Uh, it also seemed so reductionistic. It seemed like, where is the great spirituality? <laughs> where is great spiritual states and spiritual kind of realities and whatever, you know? Like, there must be, you know, that, that can't be it. But apparently it is. It might be disappointing for you to hear. <laughs> but uh, the... Um, but as long as there is hate in the world, I think it's pretty f- wonderful to have a religion that's based on coming to the end of hate, front and center. Other religions have other things front and center, center and then the virtues and how you live maybe is a little bit on the edges of it, of that center. But for, uh, for the Buddha, front and center was the end of greed, hatred, and delusion. And, uh, and so the Dharma practice becomes understanding how hatred works, lessening our hatred, not acting on hatred, enough so that we can find our way, find a path that takes us to time where it comes to an end for us. And, but that, and that, that includes not just hatred, it's a big word. And some people maybe feel, I don't have hatred. I'm just irritated with my neighbor. Or there's bitterness. There is uh, resentment. All those are considered to be forms of hatred. There's also hostility. And the hostility and hatred are, in the Buddhist teachings are closely connected, like almost synonymous. So whatever hatred is, it always involves some degree of hostility as part of it. And um, does irritation always have some quality of hostility in it? Does uh, frustration have some degree of hostility in it? Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you know, it depends how we define these words. But if you're frustrated with your computer and you throw it across this room, then there's hostility in it, right? So, uh, for the Buddha, even the mildest irritation and frustration is a seedbed for hatred. So as we begin looking at this, you know, the, the ecology of hatred, the frustration, irritation, all these things are, are part of it and part and parcel of it. There's a, uh, uh, I like to think that uh, the Buddhist scriptures don't have like a formal beginning, like the Bible has the book of Genesis and it's kind of like, you know, 
that you know, has a clear beginning. But I like to think of the, the Dhammapada, this uh, collection of verses. It's such a popular text, one of the most, most read scriptural texts from the time of the Buddha, that um, it kind of, at the beginning of that, I think of this a little bit like uh, the, you know, the beginning. And, and what's interesting about it is that, uh, you know, the, the Bible begins with reference to God, like God created everything. In contrast to that, if I'm allowed to contrast it, which maybe I'm not, but maybe just you know provisionally, that uh, that uh, the Buddhist beginning, Dhammapada at least, is not nothing to do with God or anything outside of the individual. It's more like it all begins in our mind. It says all experience is born of the mind, made of the mind, created of the mind. The mind leads along. So it's quite, it's quite a contrast between pointing towards God or pointing towards one's own mind. And after saying that, the text then goes, has it in two verses, and then it goes on to the next one. And it says, um, uh, he attacked, no, they attacked, they attacked me. The, 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 the emphasis is important. They attacked me. They abused me. They defeated me. Uh, harboring hostility like this, hatred does not end. They attacked me. They abused me. They defeated me. Not harboring ill will, hostility like this, hatred comes to an end. Hatred does not end through hatred. Hatred ends by non-hatred. This is the ancient truth. And some translations like to translate non-hatred as love, which makes it a little more inspiring for some people. Hatred does not end by hatred, hatred ends by love. but I like, I like to translate it as non-hatred, which is a literal translation, because there's more than just love that can end hatred. Generosity, care, uh, friendliness. There's all these kind of range of things that are, are the alternative to hatred. And so here we have this text, you know, that here again, we find this emphasis on hatred front and center emphasizing the importance of the mind and then being careful with your mind because what you do with the mind has consequences. And uh, the, the beginning verses go like this, something like this. All experience is born of the mind, rooted in the mind, created by the mind. Um, speak or act with a corrupted mind and suffering follows like the cart, a heavy cart follows the oxen that's pulling it along. So there's this burden you carry along. And then it repeats at the beginning again. It says, uh, all experience is born of mind, 
made by mind, it has mind as the forerunner. Speak and act with a pure mind and happiness follows like the shadow behind you. More or less, I'm paraphrasing the verses. A shadow has no weight. Have you tried weighing your shadow? <laughs> and, uh, and so the d- difference between a burden, this weight that you carry with you, versus there's something that has no weight that comes along everywhere you go. Happiness follows like a shadow. And there's the, this you know, wonderful descriptive, descriptive difference between suffering and happiness. And, uh, and so what we do, what we say and what we do are consequential for our happiness, for our suffering, for the burdens we carry and for the happiness that we, that float along, that are e- easy for us to have. And then it goes on and talks about hatred. Hatred is considered to be a, a fire. It burns us. It's sometimes referred to as, uh, uh, it's kind of like a, um, uh, if you hold a liquid poison in your hand, but you have a wound in your hand, a cut, then the poison can go in and can, you, you can get poisoned. So, that, so having hatred is like having poison in a injured, a wounded hand, you know, open, open wound in the, Hatred is considered a kind of bondage. People who are caught in hatred are caught in bondage. So it's clearly the tradition, Buddha understands that hatred harms the person who hates. But to tell that to someone who hates, or someone tells you and you're full of hate, probably doesn't help. It's, you know, so, to, but to understand hatred one of the things to understand, I think is very important, is that hatred creates a strong sense of separation between oneself and others. And, uh, hatred narrows the broadness and the openness of the mind. And it creates, it creates definitions, creates very strong definitions or boundaries or, or between who I am and who someone else is. And uh, uh, whereas the absence of hatred loosens and dissolves some of these strong definitions, strong boundaries, strong ideas of me, my people, you, those people, or something. But is, is that reasonable to point out to someone? Probably not. I was struck by how much the news, they read the popular news, concerns things that relate to greed, hatred, and delusion. Violence, lots of it. And if it's not violence, you know, that from people with hatred, I mean, I don't think the hurricanes and tornadoes hate us, <laughs> but uh, they impact us with a lot of, you know, very challenging. So it's very evocative. People read about the challenges. How often do you have headline news that, uh, you know, someone loved someone else. Someone cared about someone else. <laughs> you know, or, you know, I wonder, I, I haven't read any news about how many people have been mobilized 
to help the Ukrainian refugees. I heard a friend of mine recently the other day told me that she has a friend who uh, uh, bought an airplane ticket for Eastern Europe and told friends and told whoever, may had a GoFundMe page that I'm going there to help the refugees and if you want to give me money, you can. I paid my own ticket, my own way there. And so uh, he went there and just on his own initiative and um, he spent three weeks driving people from the Ukrainian border to wherever they had to go, refugees. That's what he did. And um, so that didn't make headline news. Maybe it doesn't deserve that, but, but the question is, why, do we, why does the news focus on problems always and expressions of violence and hatred? And I think that one of the, re- I suspect that one of the reasons is that human beings have a strong survival instinct, a very strong sense of wanting to survive, wanting to exist as an individual, as a person. And so things that threaten our survival get our attention. And, and as, we get, as, we, as we read about things and learn about things or have experiences that threaten, seem to threaten our survival in some way, directly or indirectly, it strengthens the sense of self. It strengthens me who has to respond, do something, protect myself and all that. And the focus becomes increasingly on me and my people in order to be safe or get our way or be able to have our, be fulfilled in some way. And that's what, and so when we read about these things, these things are born from self-concern, conceit, selfishness sometimes. We read about it and get horrified or be upset or get angry it points the tension back to many people back to themselves. Now I feel terrible. Now I'm worried about climate change and what's going to impact me. And now, you know, all these terrible things happening, you know, something has to happen. And, you know, and, and so the self gets involved in a way. And one of the ways it gets involved is um, in, now apparently in, here in this country is astounding amount of conspiracy theories. Astounding amount of speculation about all this. And I read recently that um, some idea that that whole movement towards conspiracy theories had its birth with the, the aftermath of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. I remember when I was, I was, a, I was a kid then, but I remember my parents and their friends would read all the books that got published right after the assassination about all the theories about what really happened there. And they, I remember my, listening to my parents, friends, and you know, having these conversations about what, what could have happened. And of course people want to understand what's happening. It's how we protect ourselves or how we find our way, but also understanding ourselves, understanding the situation, often reinforces again the conceit I'm right, I figured it out. Now I know, I need to know. And uh, there's those who don't know, those who know. And in a confusing world where it's hard to know, it can be, the confusion is frightening. You know, how do we survive? How do we manage ourselves this way? 
And so the whole spectrum, you know, of political spectrum are full of, filled with conspiracy theories, ideas, theories, coming up with ideas. And, and uh, you know, I, so it was, uh, it's quite something even, you know, to have these conversations with good friends and feel going down a rabbit hole, you know, with people presenting with great certainty, this is how it is, you know. Or, and you know, in some ways, sometimes they, it is how it is in some ways, but what's the context for what they're saying? What is the wider view and what's useful? And how do we find our way with all this? So Buddhism doesn't have a final answer to this. I don't think Buddhism ever expected. The Buddha never seemed to have offered a recipe to solve human problems, the world. Maybe that's disappointing. What he offered was how to solve us as individuals so that we could be forces of good in the world. We can change rather than looking for God as the creation of the world, we look at ourselves being the creators of the world, the world that comes from out of us, the world that will grow from how we live this life. And one of the core principles of this is don't succumb to hate. Don't live with hate. Work to end hate in yourself and promote the ending of hate in the world. Speak up when there's violence. Make a refuge for people who are suffering the violence of the world. Be a refuge for the people who are struggling and afraid. Move in the direction of love, of care and compassion not, not in the direction of excessive self-concern and self-preoccupation that narrows the scope of our attention. And how do we do that when so much reinforcement is to get narrow again, back to oneself? My concerns, my needs and everything, or my opinions. And I, I'm in these conversations with people sometimes who are talking about what's happening in the world. And they get, people get opinionated. And as they get opinionated, I get this feeling like I'm supposed to have an opinion. I'm either supposed to agree with them or if I disagree, like, like then I have to assert myself. And, and then I'm kind of like, now I'm caught up in this whole thing. You know, who's right, who's wrong, my opinions, correcting people them wanting to correct me or tell me this is how it is and and you know the focus is on me you know it's 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 not a comfortable world to be in i don't think it leads to that to be in conversations but that's the kind of the consequence of the conversations it doesn't lead to peace so what leads to peace if we ask the question what leads to world peace we might be missing the point. We might be missing where we can make the most change, which is in ourselves. Can we 
not narrow our scope, narrow our attention, narrow our focus? Can we not be caught in self-preservation, self-protection in a way that creates a strong separation of self and others, creates the other and defines ourselves in relationship to others and the people who are a threat and people who are not? In one passage in the teachings of the Buddha, it said that the Buddha brought an end to greed, hatred, and delusion, and then lived uh, with courage, bravery, and taking a stand. Kind of powerful language, to live with courage, bravery, and taking a stand. So this is not, you know, being peaceful for oneself and ending hatred and therefore just kind of being passively and disappearing into some nice meditation state. To then, what does it mean to live with courage and bravery out of non-hate? Non-hate does not mean we become passive. But what is a state of friendliness, of love, of care, of goodwill that we're capable of, capable of which those are all states where the, the, the focus is not on excessively, predominantly on oneself, one's own survival. The doors of attention are open and the attention is concerned with others. And this ability to open up the doors of concern out into the world um, can be frightening because aren't we supposed to take care of ourselves? How are we going to manage then? And that doesn't, and that, that movement doesn't get a lot of uh, press in the paper, as I said, the news. Because it probably doesn't, people don't click to read a lot about love because it doesn't trigger their self-preservation concerns or our titillation concerns. I mean, how many times do we read because we're kind of titillated by it all, maybe? I think uh, there's this, there's this uh, amazing, I don't know, I, I, don't, I just read headlines and some people talk to me about it, this amazing um, libel trial that's going on and on and on between these two actors. I mean, I'm just blown away at the, that public resources, courts and judges are being used for such an amazing amount of time for this crazy libel thing. And, uh, and then, you know, is this... And why are people so interested? Why is it in the news every day? Why is it such a big deal? So I, I haven't read the article, so I don't know. Maybe it's really central to the progress of humankind. And I'm missing something here. <laughs> that, uh, um, but what about the, you know, the news about love, the news about care and support? And what's the news that inspires that in us? Where's the news? Of, there's news about the, ar- the, the size of armies and how many soldiers are killed. What about the news of all the many people who are helping? 
and all the lives they're saving. So this movement towards opening up to ourselves, to the wider world. And in Buddhism, it's not about only focusing externally. We have this amazing ability uh, to be aware at the meeting place of others and ourselves, the outer world and the inner world. And Buddhist practice is to have that awareness open and broad to be encompassing both. So we can be careful with what's going on inside, come to a resolution around our own hostilities and resentments and bitternesses we have, to bring those to an end, while also being open to the wider world. So the non-hatred that we grow in then can meet the world with all these wholesome and positive ways, with goodwill. And so, so now we have in this country, you know, that it's, it's horrific, the, the violence that's happened just these last months, and a number of, it seems like a phenomenal number of mass shootings going on, like a record number in terms of frequency in a short period of time. And uh, if you read a little bit the statistics of uh, hate crimes in the United States, the, numerically the greatest number of hate crimes are directed towards blacks. And then uh, the second greatest is uh, people who are LGBTQ queer people, people who have you know other gender orientations or sexual orientations. It doesn't get the same level of uh, press, the violence against LGBTQ as other violences except maybe the shooting in Orlando some years ago. And, uh, and then it's Hispanics in terms of frequency. In terms of um, uh, per capita for the different population size of these different groups of people, the greatest amount of hate crimes uh, per capita of is uh, in this country is against Jews. There's about five, six million Jews in this country, but the disproportionately amount of violence uh, or uh, hate, hate is directed towards Jews given their population size. And then blacks, and then LGBTQ, and Hispanics. And now we have this growing amount of hate for against Asians. It seems to just be increasing. It seems like the whole pandemic and how the pandemic was, how certain people blamed Chinese for the pandemic was kind of the catalyst for a whole new level of violence against Asians. So, so I think we have to. I think we have to be very careful 
not to have that kind of reaction to all this, that we're horrified, maybe, but to uh, continue the movement of different groups in this country, seeing each other as being separate and distinct. The care that goes into recognizing the individual problems and being careful not to not to exact exaggerate or ex- extenuate the separations of people and the hostility between people and is that possible is it reasonable to do that so not to have to uh, but rather keep opening up and imagine that if each of us could be a refuge for anybody who comes into our view could we be a friendly presence with goodwill for anybody who comes into our purview? What would it take? Is that reasonable? Is it, and how do we do that? How do we keep, how do we make room in people for our hearts, even when people do violent things? even when we have to oppose the violence and say no and try to stop it. But, how, but you know, there's this, you know, never succumb to hatred is the message of the Buddha. Work for the end of hatred in, your, in yourself. Promote the end of hatred in the world. And perhaps with an open heart, live with bravery with courage. And the teaching was that the Buddha took a stand. And what do you take a stand in? One of the things to take a stand in that the Buddha talks about is taking a stand in peace. Taking a stand in non-hatred. And then living in the world. living with love and goodwill and kindness, supporting our heart's peace, supporting a possibility for other people to have their heart at peace. What does it take? So we might not have the solution for what our society needs, but uh, in my mind, If we can be friendly to people, who knows what that impact of that friendliness has on someone we meet? One of the sources, one of the one of the prime conditions for a certain degree of violence in our society and hatred is uh, people who are bullied, people who feel marginalized, people who feel that the door has been closed to them. Who knows if you're friendly to the little kid down the street? You might never know how, how significant that was because that act of friendliness might have prevented 
someone growing up to have all kinds of horrific violent tendencies. What if someone had been friendly to someone like Hitler when he was a kid? Could that have changed history? I don't know, is it naive to say so? We'll never know how many Hitlers have not become Hitlers because they had a loving grandmother or a neighbor who believed in them and supported them and gave them kindness and support. We might not have the solutions to the world of today, but it's possible that each of you has a solution for the world, what it's going to be like in 50 years. You'll never know it. But maybe you are kind to a small child or to a grown older child or a teenager or an adult. Maybe you showed them that they were lovable or you showed them that they were worthy. You showed them a different way that people don't see. Too many people don't see in our society. Too many people are ignored and forgotten and marginalized. It's possible that each of you, one of you, not each of you maybe, I meant all of you, but maybe even if it's just one of you, and we don't know which one it's going to be yet, one of you, and you will never know actually, but it turns out that one of you here today is going to be responsible for the fact that in 50 years, someone did not become Hitler, but became a force of goodness and support. We don't know the cause and conditions of how things evolve. Where do they begin? I'd like to propose they always begin here with us, with our actions, just like the beginning of Dhammapada. It begins with our actions, what we do. That's the beginning for the future. I trust it. I trust that we can live in wholesome, supportive ways with love and care and compassion. I trust it and I don't need to know what the consequences are in 50 years for doing so because I believe in it now. So uh, may you each be a force of good in this world. So in 50 years, it's a better world. So thank you. And uh, if some of you are interested in uh, joining me with some chairs out in the parking lot, we can have a little discussion if you want. Now we're in a little informal time. I can maybe say 15, 20 minutes. 
and uh, I'll bring a chair out and be out there if, if some of you want to join me and we can have a discussion that would be great otherwise um, I look forward to our next chance to be together thank you